two days, but also like 200 millennia. We I all would deserve say. to be in this year now. Yes. Oh my God. Welcome back to School Spirits. Welcome back to School Spirits. I'm Catherine. I'm Holland. And we are both PhD students at Vanderbilt. I used to be a math coach and middle school math teacher. And I used to be an English teacher. And here we are talking to you about research about education for all you interested maybe like not as interested teachers we're still here talking about it <laughs> all right our drink today is called a bam zoom for all you <laughs> zoom teachers out there oh my god like everybody everybody right? i mean well what's the alternative right like teachers sacrificing their lives for the job not sure if that's worth it. Um, You're not sure, but can... certainly some administrators are sure that it is. <sighs> well, I don't would even necessarily say administrators. I would say like district personnel yeah. or state leaders. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> if you need a good hard drink, this might be your your key. It's based off of a uh, bamboo, which I've never had before. Nope. This is new for both of us, <laughs> uh, and it's spirits that we've never done before. Yeah. So it is one part cherry, one part dry vermouth. One dash of Angostura, the, the like bitters that everyone Regular knows bitters. they look like, and then a dash of orange bitters, and then we got fancy and garnished it with a lemon peel. Yeah, um, I'm very interested to see how this tastes, so cheers. cheers. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like syrupy. It is kind of syrupy. I think it's the sherry. Oh, yeah. Tastes like sherry, I would say. So if you're a sherry fan... Yeah. Are you a Sherry fan? Yeah, I love Sherry. What? Really? Oh my gosh. I love that is so unexpected. Really? Yes. I wouldn't call, I wouldn't say that you're a Sherry fan. I like a lot of, um, how they used to call them, like after dinner drinks. Oh. See, I don't, I'm not, I'm not much of a like, what is, well, I guess aperitif is before. So what's the after dinner? The digestif. That's what it is. Yes. That's what it is. I'm not. Isn't eating. Sherry one of those? I think it is. Maybe. I know, like, Fernet is one. Mm. I don't mind Fernet. This is not my favorite, but I will drink it. Hey. <laughs> I feel like that's, <laughs> that's my approach to life lately. This is not my favorite, but I will drink it. <laughs> <laughs> it is different than most of our cocktails. Yeah, definitely. So maybe we'll reach a broader audience. <laughs> yeah, sherry just fans, the cocktail. This one's for you. <laughs> the overlap of sherry fans and teachers. I'm interested to know what that cross-section is. Please let us know <laughs> if that is you. <laughs> All right. Today's episode is broadly speaking on tracking, mm -hmm. uh, which can encompass a bunch of things yes. like Gifted programs, remedial programs, high school, tracking in terms of coursework, AP mm -hmm. courses, broad spectrum. So, Helen, what is your article about? It's so interesting that we decided to do this about tracking because I recently had a conversation with my brother about tracking and, like, high school and how, like, it was like you only saw the kids that you were in those classes with, Right. It was just an interesting conversation where we talked about um, smartness as a social construct, and it really, like, 
it blew his mind, but he also was like, this, yes, that's exactly what it is. So, well, we decided to do this because my brother, who's an avid listener of School Spirits, <laughs> suggested the topic. I love it. So yeah. Shout out to Evan. Yeah, shout out to Evan. Shout out to my brother, Nathan. Yeah. For just having a conversation with me this about episodes harness. for the brothers and the sherry drinkers. <laughs> Also, that seems like not a, not a huge overlap. Um, so anyway, my article, it is definitely um, an Ed Psych article, which I which we don't really do a whole lot no. with. Um, but I thought it was interesting because it kind of gives you this, like, broad overview of the effects of tracking, which okay. I thought was interesting. So the article title is, A Social Cognitive Perspective of the Consequences of Curricular Tracking on Youth Outcomes, and this was published in Educational Psychology Review in 2020. So um, the author of this is Dr. Camila Legette, I think I'm saying that right, L-E-G-E-T-T-E, mm-hmm. um, and she is a postdoctoral research fellow at UNC Chapel Hill in the Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute, and it looks like she's working on a project called the Carolina Consortium on Human Development that works on the advanced study of developmental science, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So she received her PhD from UNC Greensboro um, from the Department of Human Development and Family Studies, and she uses quantitative and qualitative methods to investigate how school inequalities shape youth self-perceptions and outcomes. You'll see this a lot in her article. And this is, I got all this info um, from her bio from AERA, the American Educational Research Association, they have these SIGs, special interest groups, and there is a specific special interest group that specifically addresses tracking and detracking, which I didn't know. I didn't either. And she's a part of that special interest group. That's really cool. Yeah. So, yeah, this this group's whole focus is on tracking. Um, It it doesn't look like some of the articles, because they have, like, a a whole page of just research on it, and it, it doesn't look like it's been updated maybe in the last few years, but... If you're interested um, in AERA's website. Maybe we'll do a follow-up episode after AERA 2021. True. Yes. Let me talk about this article. So overall, Dr. Legit's deal in this article is that she wants to provide this conceptual model of how tracking might affect students' sociocognitive processes, like they're, the way that they're developing um, socially and cognitively beginning in middle school, because this is like where a lot of the tracking starts. And she mentions like, there's definitely stuff going on in elementary school, but middle school is where it really gets started. And then like preparing that pathway to high school with all the tracking. Um, and she also points out that middle school is this really important time for kids, social and emotional development. So that's kind of why she is tracking like what's going on. Tracking what's going on with tracking. <laughs> uh, so this article is, I usually do a lot of empirical articles. This is more theoretical because she's providing this conceptual model. Um, but she's also in creating this model. She has to provide this kind of lit review um, from all these different areas about how tracking perpetuates inequalities and creates these connections for like all these perspectives on what tracking is actually doing to kids. So I thought that that was really interesting just to see from a different perspective because she mentions like there's a lot of research being done about how tracking affects you know what instruction is happening in schools but she's coming at it from a lens of like what is tracking doing specifically to the students and how they see themselves so she is focused a lot on these 
these three sociocognitive processes, including self-perceptions, beliefs, and goals. And she has this really amazing visual in her paper with boxes and paths that I'm going to talk through uh, because I think it helps summarize what she's trying to get across. So, um, Catherine, I'm going to show you because maybe... Okay, so it's like a super complicated flow chart. Yes, Like exactly. one of those like decision trees where yes. it's like you there's an arrow from one box to another yeah. and you can either go from there to one place or another place. Exactly. Hers is a lot more like overlap because basically you have at the beginning of this model track placement. So she kind of says there's advanced and standard mm -hmm. and you can go down all these different paths, but ultimately what it, all of those paths lead to is educational inequity. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she shows you how those paths work and how all of these different facets kind of overlap and work together to create educational inequity. Um, and she's coming at it from this ed psych perspective, but she says that regardless of all of those, the ed psych, you know, things with self-perception and beliefs and goals that like race is the moderator for all of it. So even if you're looking at it for like kid self-concept, all wrapped into that self-concept is race um, and racial composition of different tracked classes, Yeah, which I think is, it's like taking it from this other like critical angle as well. I love that. Okay, so she starts off in this conceptual model with tracking placements, like I said, standard or advanced, and that path leads to these three cognition processes. So self-perception, beliefs, and goals. And she says that self-perception, beliefs, and goals of students, that leads to academic and behavior outcomes. So when she's talking about self-perception, I mean, it's kind of, it sounds a little explanatory, but she's talking, talking a lot about students' identities. So that includes like your academic identity as a student. So do you think that you're smart? Are you motivated because you think you're smart? Um, a lot of this is tied into being in a higher level class. Even career identity is can be linked to tracking, um, where you become more aware of your own tracked position over time. And then that makes you more or less, it makes you believe that you're more or less capable of certain careers. And like I said, all of this has from, she's, she's kind of putting together a lot of other people's research to show this. So this is all, we know all of these things. So is this like a literature review or is it like a conceptual paper that just draws from? I would say it's more of a conceptual paper. Okay. Um, because it's drawing from a lot of different areas. Um, definitely she creates the model, but. It's not like a systematic lit review. No, it's not a systematic lit review. Not at all. No, cool. no. So, okay, so she, this area of self-perception, we know that that leads to certain academic outcomes um, and talking about academic self-concept where tracking is related to motivation and aspirations. And then you have this uh, cognition process of beliefs. So we know that beliefs about ability and effort are affected by tracking. So tracking implies, her overarching point throughout all of this is that tracking implies that you have, you either have the ability or you don't have the ability. Um, which makes students less likely to put forth effort if they believe that ability is more important. That makes sense. Yeah, right? Um, yeah, makes sense. Um, and then the last um, cognitive process that, like, is affected by tracking it are um, the creation of goals by students. So there's, like, a lot of research in ed psych. I don't know if you ever took an ed psych class. Did you? Yeah, okay. I was a psych minor. Well, goal orientation theory, I'm sure you've heard of this before. Mm -hmm. I, that was, I took a grad class in ed psych, and this is like the one thing that I remember from it. Uh, so you can, so 
you can have mastery goals or you have performance goals. So mastery goals are the ones that like lead you to want to learn and develop confidence. And like, these are the ones that like, I feel like programs um, like Waldorf school or, or uh, Montessori are the ones that are focused on mastery goals, right? Performance goals are ones where you are, you just want people to not think that you're stupid. So you're just trying to learn information. I, as I thought about it, I was like, are a lot of what I'm doing in classes more performance goal oriented? Because I just don't want to look stupid in here. She, so it's interesting because she said both standard and advanced tracks, because of the, the tracking itself, might be prone to performance goals. Um, because if you believe that it's all about ability and not effort, then you just want to show and you're not actually learning for your own enjoyment. Right which I think is super interesting that like the system itself is supposed to like the reason it was designed that way is to like help students that are maybe like slower at learning this concept and put them all together and ones that are faster, put them all together. But ultimately it ends up in the same position for both of them in that neither one of the, those groups are learning for enjoyment. So then the, there's this other level. So she knows, so she also says we, we know that tracking connects to peer interactions and student-teacher interactions. Those also lead to academic and behavioral outcomes. And those are also sometimes connected to the self-concept, the, um, the goals, uh, and the beliefs. So with peer interactions, tracking leads students to stay with the same students throughout the day. Um, and there's usually not a lot of movement among those tracks. Like once you're in that like standard track, you're going to be in that standard track. Once you're in the advanced track, you're going to be in the advanced track. I mean, just knowing from my experiences as a teacher in middle school, it was so, so hard to move kids in and out of the track that they were in. Mm -hmm. And then our like high track was capped at a certain number because they needed to make a class size. Mm -hmm. And so you couldn't go over that because you didn't like you couldn't create a class of like three kids. And so but you could if you just added more kids from the regular track. Right. <laughs> and so it just ended up being like there were a finite number of slots mm. and it was so hard to like move that around. Basically you were put in it in fifth grade and that's where you are. Oh yeah. I mean, even, you know, cause I ended up teaching ninth grade, 10th grade and 11th grade and I taught some honors classes and I, I taught like, um, this like connected college class and I would recommend kids from my like quote unquote standard class all the time to go to honors um, and to go to AP. And then I would have teachers be like, well, they weren't in these other classes. So like, I'm just not sure that they're prepared to do this. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like yeah. they, they love, they're great. They love writing. They're great at this. They want to be in a, in your class for some reason, even though <laughs> you don't even really like kids. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. It's so, it's so weird. I mean, I guess I saw more of the like, kids in AP classes coming back to regular classes, but that was because their teachers were like, sorry, you didn't turn in this paper. You're not meant for this class. Go down. I feel like that probably happens more in high school. In middle school, it was was even hard to bump a kid in the like higher honors level track out of it, even if they weren't performing at the level of the other kids in the class. Hmm. So, oh, and so with the peer interactions, right? So there's not much movement. And um, she mentions that students in lower track classes that aren't experiencing school belonging also influence their friends to not be motivated as well. So it's like, it's just all, it's so interconnected, right? Because those kids are not into school in the first place because of the tracking system. 
Um, and so then it's like, let me grab more people into not being into this. And, and also I was thinking about, she doesn't mention this quite here, but thinking about race, if we know, cause she mentions this earlier and we just know this for a fact, like more white kids are always going to be in those advanced track classes and black kids are going to be in lower classes, I guess, students of color in general. So like <laughs> if we know that white students are more likely to be in them in these classes, the problem is, is that they're always separated from students that aren't students of color. So they're not making friends with students of color. They're like not interacting with them. Right. It's I, I started thinking about my own high school experience and how like limited those classes were. You know, I had the same people in my classes from like seventh grade on. Yeah. The only time I interacted with people outside of my classes was when I was like in choir or musical theater, you know? And if I hadn't sought those things out, I never would have been around kids that weren't in my classes already. Yeah. Um, And then as far as student-teacher interactions, uh, we know that teachers perceive students in higher track classes to have higher academic abilities and hold them to higher standards. So then higher track students might think their teachers care for them more than lower track students, which is then connected back to beliefs and goals related to performance and ability as far as students in lower tracks like feel that they can't reach out to teachers because they're just like their teachers don't care as much about them. And so then if they don't reach out, then maybe they're getting lower grades. And so then that's affecting their self-perception as being like not good at school. It's just, it's so interconnected. All of it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as I mentioned at the beginning, She points out this is all influenced by the individual student's race as well as the racial composition of the school and the classroom. Tracking, she points out that tracking might shape students' perceptions of racial groups because if there aren't many black kids in these higher track classes, students might think that's due to cultural deficits. And then those same ideas are internalized by black students' perceptions and internalizing them. Um, I think she specifically mentions black students because I think there's just been more research done around the differences between white students and black students. And she, I think she's done research on like black student self-perceptions, but I'm sure that this is also true of other students of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so overall, like I said earlier, the way that ability is reinforced through tracking has harmful effects on all of these areas. Mm-hmm. So self-perception, beliefs, goals, student interactions with each other, student interactions with teachers. So my standout quote is, although the purpose of curricular tracking is to provide an effective way to teach students who have different cognitive abilities, this school practice has unintentional consequences for students. The salience of ability created by curricular tracking shapes how students view themselves in the school context, their beliefs about intelligence, and the academic goals they set. Um, So I just thought that was like a good Good summary. summary overview of the, yeah. the purpose of this teacher takeaways I was just thinking about like it seems overwhelming as an individual teacher <laughs> to think about how can I stop the tracking system um because it's just can't. so ingrained yeah. in it's so our, systemic yeah it's ingrained in our American schooling system um I think but I think a lot of teachers don't even think about it right because like I I mean a lot of teachers have succeeded in those systems and that's why they come back and are teachers advanced classes are given as like a reward to teachers right yeah so then it becomes this like 
those students are better because it's been being seen as a reward for teachers. It also becomes like a teacher tracking sort of thing. Oh, for sure. Where like if you demonstrate some level of like high quality teaching mm-hmm. moves mm-hmm. over time, mm-hmm. you get awarded this good class. Oh, for sure. Which is also ridiculous. Yeah, I think in my second year of teaching when I taught 10th grade, for some reason I was given like all honors classes. And like these other teachers that have been teaching longer than me were like, just looked at me like, I don't understand how you got those classes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I I don't either. I think it was just a scheduling thing. Yeah. Which is so, yeah, I didn't think about it as teacher tracking too. I do think that you can advocate for curriculum changes so that like those disparities aren't there as far as who's actually getting interesting materials and who's getting like rigorous like this assignments. This makes me think back to our last episode on curriculum yeah, exactly. and about specifically the science article that I had with the AP and mm-hmm, how they were able mm-hmm. to change the curriculum, even though it was an AP class mm-hmm. and they changed it in a way that you could also use it in a non-AP class. Yes, exactly. I think that you can do that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we, we talked about like advocating for certain students to move around, but I also then feel like that reinforces to that student you should, you don't belong in this class because you're smart, whatever that means. And yeah. You belong in this other class. Like, so that's even complicated. I had a, I have a friend who, um, here in Nashville, actually, before he moved, he attempted to work with his middle school to detract the school. Yep. And it was going really well until like white parents found out about it because this school was, it was like pretty racially heterogeneous, but my friend had seen that like all of the white kids were in the advanced classes, all of the black kids were in the lower classes. And so he had pushed for detracking. Yeah. White parents found out and they were pissed because they're like, now my kid's not going to look as successful going into high school or all of this stuff. Um, my kid worked really hard to get there. It like always comes back to this myth of meritocracy. Of sh- I'm sure. And like grit. Yeah. I'm, I'm also thinking about just, this is like a broad thing. Um, how detracting also means that we need to radically rethink what the purpose of school is and the meaning of grades, broadly speaking. Oh my gosh, have you seen all the articles that have come out on how many kids are, quote, failing, like, Zoom school right now? Oh my god. I, like, I haven't even clicked on them because it, like, stresses me out. Because I just don't understand mm-hmm. what, like, wh- what's the purpose of failing kids like, I, I mean, I'm going to say at all in general, but like, especially right now, mm-hmm. it just, it seems yeah. so, I was going to say misguided, but I think it's more than that. It's like pernicious, you know, it's crazy. It's SAT word right Thank there. you. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Obviously I was trapped into <laughs> higher classes to study for my SAT. Um, anyway, yeah, that's, that's what I have for you with this overview. I think that the... Like, seeing the model really makes a difference in, like, talking through this article. But I think, overall, it shows, like, when we say that ability is inherent, like, it affects all of these beliefs about yourself and what you're able to do and how you interact in the world. And then with that, you know, like, you're not alone being in the world. Like, there's other, there's also other factors, especially race and schools, that lead to all kinds of educational inequities that are, are far-reaching, like, far beyond just that one classroom or for that one kid like we can see these effects of tracking we can probably put the model up on social media true yeah 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 yeah. I think it's I think it's really great um 
and I think it is like a nice way to think about it so anyway yeah I'm really excited because I feel like my article is a specific example of a lot of the things that you talked about Ooh, yes that's good because it's empirical yes oh I love that starting out with a concept and then going into I know it's so good okay so my article is called an investigation of black males in advanced placement math and science courses and their perceptions of identity identity related to STEM possibilities. Mm-hmm. It is from 2019 cool. and it is in a journal called Gifted Child Today, <laughs> which I didn't even know existed, but here we are. I think just like even thinking about like giftedness is just such a oh, I know. whatever. Um, okay, so this article has two authors. The first author is Alonzo M. Flowers III. He is an associate prof- professor at Drexel University in Philly. But you'll like this, Holland. He got <laughs> his BA from Texas State, nice. his MA from UT, and a PhD nice. from Texas A&M. Texas born and raised. Yeah. I mean, not me, but him. I'm a, well. I actually have no idea. <laughs> yeah. At least Texas educated. Yeah, Texas educated. <laughs> um, okay, so he specializes in academic identity development of African-American and Latino males in STEM education. Specifically, he says that he researches the academic experiences of what are considered academically gifted African-American male students in the STEM disciplines and the needs of underrepresented students in education. Mm -hmm. The second author is Rosa M. Banda, who you are familiar with, I think. I'm pretty sure I've read like something else that she's written. Mm -hmm. She's an assistant professor of educational leadership at Texas University Corpus Christi. Cool. And she... Where Selena's from. Oh, no way. Mm -hmm. Corpus Christi. She is a qualitative researcher whose primary research interests include high-achieving Latinas in engineering, gifted, poor students of color, and faculty diversity. And these are pulled from her faculty website. So this, as I'm sure you can imagine, is a qualitative study. Yes. It is an interview study where they interviewed six black males in STEM AP courses in the same school. Okay. So it's a multiple case studies where they took the cases of these six males. And they had some like pretty interesting motivations. So you alluded to this, but they like put it in their lit review. Um, Research shows that there's a positive relationship between taking AP courses in STEM in high school and STEM degree completion in college. Hmm. So if you take an AP course in a STEM field in high school, you are more likely to complete a STEM degree in college. Interesting. Yep. Um, Only 6% of black students took a STEM AP exam compared to 11.9 of white students. Proportionally speaking, Mm -hmm. half the amount of black students take the AP exam compared to white students. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Like overall? So of all white students enrolled in school, 12% of those take a STEM AP exam. Gotcha. Okay. Of all black students enrolled in school, only 6%. Take the AP wow. exam. Wow. Okay. So you yeah, can, yeah, yeah. You can compare yeah, those yeah, percentages yeah. proportionally, and it's mm-hmm. half. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And this is so interesting that I did not know this, but the AP exam was developed because, like, in the fifties, the College Board noticed 
that minoritized and low-income populations were less likely to go to a college and attain college degrees. And so they developed AP courses and AP exams to open up opportunities for minoritized and low-income students to get college, to take college classes in high school since they were less likely to go to college. That's so, and of course, that was just like gobbled up by rich white people, like just trying to get their GPAs up. Like, Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. Yes. So those like two things next to each other in this paper were like eye-opening. Like this system that's in the U.S. was developed for minoritized students and it is being taken advantage doubly by white students. Yeah. Well, and the fact that like, I mean, now thinking about how expensive it is, to take these tests like that seems like that would be another barrier because I think what's what's ended up happening now is is community colleges are serving that purpose for a lot of those students yeah but AP is still seen as like way more prestigious mm-hmm. than community college courses it's not crazy even though so many colleges now it's the bottom line is always money right <laughs> because now colleges are like I don't want to give up like this money for these three credit hours that I'm going to give you. Sorry, we won't count that. Yep. It's so crazy. Um, Okay. So the other cool thing about this paper that I really liked was their conceptual framework. So they combined two different frameworks. They combined Bandura's conception of self-efficacy and Carlone and Johnson's theory of science identity. And they really wanted to use this study to examine how these black males who are currently in AP classes either build or develop self-efficacy and STEM identities. And so the concept that they use is defined this way. They say that self-efficacy beliefs are influenced by four things. Mastery experience, which is basically like how well you were at something in the past. Mm -hmm. Vicarious experience, so watching someone else be successful around you. Social persuasion, so support from influential people, which can be like a parent, a teacher, someone like that. Physiological reaction, so your physical and emotional reaction to that experience. I just feel like this is explaining why I love karaoke so much. (laughs) (laughs) I feel a lot of self-efficacy because of all four of these components when I'm Thinking about performing karaoke. Yep. Okay, cool. (laughs) And then they argue that Carlone and Johnson's theory of science identity actually aligns, kind of like overlaps with this theory of Mm self-efficacy. So their theory of science identity has three components, competency, performance, and recognition. So competency is how well you understand science. Mm -hmm. Performance is how well you understand and utilize the science practices. And recognition is how you gain recognition as a member of the science community. So they argue that competency and performance are similar to mastery experience Mm -hmm. and recognition, obviously, is similar to social persuasion. And so they basically, in their interviews, are trying to understand how the experiences of these six black boys in AP STEM classes in high school map onto these seven, but basically four parts of self-efficacy and identity. Cool. Okay. Okay. Their findings, this is like one of the papers, the types of papers that I love because their findings aren't mind blowing. Like if you're in a school, you know them, but they actually are able to claim them. I was just talking to my, one of my advisors this morning about like, but is, but don't we know this? Like, can I say this? Because don't we just know this? And she was like, well, if you were a teacher, you like know this by experience, but that doesn't mean that like, it doesn't need to be written about because it's 
it's different to put out the research versus just like, duh, I've seen this before. Exactly. Yeah. Their first finding is that the participants, so the black boys, were able to build a community environment on the basis of ability rather than race or identity. So when they talked about their community in these AP classes, it was because they said that they felt that they were good enough to be in that community, not because they were black. My papers mentioned something about like questioning, like do AP classes like protect like race boundary? Like do they protect students from like not being looked down on because they're in this class, which still seems to be about ability Mm -hmm. at its core, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also I just want to say, while I say these findings, this study set out to explicitly understand the experiences of black males in STEM AP classes. That isn't to say that the findings of these studies or the conclusion of the study can't also be extended to other minoritized groups. Mm -hmm. They can only make claims about black males because Mm -hmm. that was all their participants. Resources became challenges when students perceived lack of parental assistance and their need for technology at home. So that was a barrier that a lot of these students discussed. Mm-hmm. Teacher support had the most impact on t- on students when taking into account all of the different areas of support. So like teachers, tutors, parents, stuff like that. If, t- if students felt supported by their teachers, that had the most impact on them feeling itself <laughs> that they were able to do the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and ask questions and like, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So students' self-advocacy was improved through vicarious experiences which again seems obvious, but they found it in the study. So they said specifically by observing others like themselves be successful in that field. Ah, yeah. So the importance of having role models. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And then even in instances when participants knew that they were competent, their self-efficacy was influenced by society's imposed identity on race and ethnicity. So even if they were like, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm good at science because I'm in this AP science class, their self-efficacy was still influenced by this like perception that black boys don't do STEM. And so it still was something that they talked about as to why they didn't quite feel mm-hmm. as identifiable as like a STEM person, as a white kid, for example. Gotcha. Standout quote. In other words... Teachers and administrators must be strategic and seek out STEM professionals and STEM college students who are also black males, whereby these individuals can share their experiences with the students. With black males seeing successful people who look like them in a STEM space, a message of inclusivity can be foundational to cultivating self-efficacy in their academic ability. Hmm. So I put this quote in there. I know it only captures like a small part of their finding, but... I've been really hot on seeing representations of yourself right now. And so it just like stood out to me, but I feel like there's a lot that is talked about in terms of putting posters on the wall of like women and like black Latinos in STEM on the wall so that you can see them. Mm -hmm. But very rarely are people like, why don't you get someone to come in and talk to those kids? And I feel like, with this whole Zoom school thing, we now have an opportunity to just, like, get someone in the field to come and, like, share their experiences, get questions asked. And I just don't think it can be stressed enough that how important it actually is to see yourself in a a position that you could never imagine yourself being in. 
and I just I think too when you like see the posters and stuff it just seems so far removed from real life like that's just not enough to make an impact I don't think like mm-hmm. and yeah like those mentors are so important yeah I'm sure that there are like different mentorship partnerships set up like maybe there's like non nonprofits that do this kind of work with STEM Maybe, but I thought this was interesting, which kind of goes into my teacher takeaways, because the paper specifically calls out teachers and administrators to bridge this gap. And I don't actually think it would be that hard. From my experiences, women in STEM and minorities or historically marginalized people in STEM want to talk about their experiences to other people that might want to join that field. Because... We want more women in the field. And I can only speak to my experience, so I don't want to speak to other people's. But I I think that it would be well-received if an administrator or a teacher reached out and was like, do you want to talk to these kids? They would love to hear from you. So that is a teacher takeaway. There's a few more. And I liked this article because they explicitly listed these, so I didn't have to interpret them very much. <laughs> I love a good concrete article. Another one is that teachers have to be advocates for minoritized Mm -hmm. students and deliberate about encouraging, in this article, Black males, but also Black females and other historically marginalized students to take AP STEM courses. That goes back to the whole teacher support influences them the most. Mm -hmm. Schools can create communities of peer support for Black students that consist of other Black people that are successful in STEM fields. And teachers should recognize and explicitly dispel the stereotypes that are associated with Black males in STEM because of that finding that even if they are actually successful and feel confident, their self-efficacy is still low because of these stereotypes. Yeah. I wonder how many STEM teachers are, like, comfortable having those conversations. Like, I just think that that's why it's so important to, like, have critical talks about race and all these other like critical areas in every single subject area. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, if you're just talking about like engineering or math, like it just doesn't address all of these other issues that come along with the field. And that's one of the things I liked about this article too, is that, I mean, most teachers are white teachers. Most dumb teachers are white males. Yeah. And yeah. so they weren't like, you just need to treat minority students better. Like that wasn't the conclusion of the mm-hmm. article mm-hmm. Um, because obviously we know that should happen, but also a lot of the biases that teachers have are implicit and they aren't aware of them yeah. and they don't have the tools to talk about them in a safe way. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciated that this article was like, listen, there are other ways to support these students. Like, You can just advocate for them to be in these tracked classes that you can advocate for them to develop a relationship with somebody that looks like them in their field. Yeah. Like you can be an ally in other ways other than your like direct reactions or interactions with them. I really appreciate that reminder that you said about like not every teacher has the tools to talk about these things without causing harm. Yeah. That was my article. I really enjoyed it. Man. So many things to talk about with tracking. I know. Maybe the whole, like, mix-up of what kids know because of Zoom school will blur those lines a little bit. Right? Yeah. Let's just put them all in one pot and see what happens. Yeah. I don't know. No, that's, that's how you restart the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, we would like to thank our helpers. We have Emma, mm -hmm. who does all of our sound editing. We still don't know what her official title is. Our sound queen. Sound queen. Yeah, I think that's it. Sound queen. And we have Anna, who is our social media queen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this episode, if you enjoyed it, was brought to you by a listener recommendation. So if you have your own recommendations, please reach out to us and let us know because we would love to talk about what you want to talk about. Yes, please. Uh, email us at questions at schoolspiritspodcast.com. Tweet at us at schoolspirits underscore our Instagram, schoolspiritspodcast. We would love to hear from you because we plan on continuing this old PCAST in the hopefully rejuvenating year of 2021. We sure do. <laughs> anyway, cheers. Cheers. cheers.